0: We have pitched our tent, we are camping a while, we are meditating around the wonderful truths that we have encountered in just the first three verses, and we continue there today. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Earthquake in Haiti. Death. Destruction. Despair. Hundreds, if not thousands, of heartbreaking images have flooded our minds. We watch the news footage as much as we can bear it. But I would say to you that our vision is myopic at best, and the scenes viewed from our recliners insulate us against the true horrors of a people who had. So little to begin with, and now next to nothing remains. And there are just no promises that anytime soon things will improve. May I put it this way, perhaps? Hope for the average Haitian is in shorter supply than water, food, and medical assistance. It's the worst of times in the history of that island. And there's little hope. Back here where we live, one of our neighborhood banks posted a sign right at the end of 2009. Its message, as we were facing the start of this new decade, simply read this way. Things will get better. And on the bottom of their banner it said, believe it. Now, maybe they will, but when asked to bank on it, to believe it, we need to know that such hope is little more than wishful thinking. Now, certainly, a positive attitude and wishful thinking has its place, but the people of God, and especially in what we might be tempted to call the worst of times, have something so much more wonderful, far beyond the notion of mere wishful or positive thinking. In fact, I declare to you that only Christians can use the term hope and mean something that is as sure and certain as the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that he lives forever and he will never die again. He is our hope. And so our hope is a living hope that can never die. I hope that we have by now fully established that truth with Peter's words in verse 3. We've been born again, he says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Only if you can dig up the bones of Jesus in some tomb outside of Jerusalem do you have a reason for ever saying, all hope is gone. But perhaps the saddest of all truths is this, that many live in this world without hope because they are still Without Christ, the richest man in the entire world, the most famous woman, the coolest new kid on the block, you see, are the poorest and most pitiful of creatures because being separated from God through unbelief, they have maybe everything in this world's sense of values, but they have No real hope. It is just as true to say that this morning there is some poorest of the poor among the Haitian population. A lone believer, perhaps, wandering the streets. And though thirsty for a drink of water perhaps longing for a bandage to bind his or her wound, yet we may count him or her among the most blessed of people anywhere, because in their case, in their great affliction, having once heard the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that some, even in their dying, cling to a living hope that will not fail them, Beloved, I'm saying we do well to begin to think like this. Seeing things from an eternal perspective is the only way you'll ever be able to make sense out of all the mysteries that take place under the sun. There are a few really great historic confessions of faith they're called. And when these confessions of faith are studied by serious students of the Bible, they become extremely valuable summaries of truth that have strengthened many generations over the years. There is one that is called the Heidelberg Confession. It is wonderful. It is one such document that dates back to the Reformation times, the 1500s. And in its catechism, the very first question is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? I wonder how you would answer. Our brothers and sisters in the 16th century learned their lessons well. And from God's word they could reply as the Heidelberg Confession taught them to reply. And this is the answer. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong to body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that's not all. It goes on to say, He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not one hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And that's not all. It goes on to say, Because I belong to Him, Christ by His Holy Spirit... Assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That a marvelous statement. We Protestants would do well to get catechized all over again. Some of you have never been asked the important questions, and perhaps even some would not know how to answer. Biblically, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Now, what makes that particular confession of faith, the Heidelberg Confession, resonate with many true believers down through the centuries of time is the fact that it is simply a restatement and application of Scripture itself. And very specifically, I would say, It is a restatement of the teaching of Peter in these first three verses that we are studying together. For example, the confession of faith mentioned the safekeeping of the redeemed by the Father who does his will in our lives. In fact, it adopted Peter's very adjective when it comes to our redemption. The precious blood of Christ, fully paying for all our sins. And just as Peter in verse 2 speaks of the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the Heidelberg Catechism says that Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and is the agent by which I come wholeheartedly, willing and ready to obey Jesus Christ to live for Him. Where even... My obedience, such as it is, is part and parcel of the gospel grace that saved me in the first place. So last Lord's Day, we addressed what I referred to, if you were here, you may remember, as the four pillars of hope rising on the sure foundation of a living Lord and Savior. I'll give them to you again. Number one, we spent almost all the rest of our time here, on the foreknowledge of God the Father. Pillar number one, the foreknowledge of God the Father. Number two, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Number three, our obedience to Jesus Christ. And number four, uh, that we are a people sprinkled with blood, even the precious blood of Christ. All of that in one verse, verse 2 of 1 Peter 1. And as I said, we dedicated most of... uh, last week's study, to the issue of God's foreknowledge, that God the Father not only knows all things, that is, his omniscience, but that he also knows me. Now that is his foreknowledge. He knew me before even my inward parts were formed in my mother's womb. In fact, he knew me before the foundation or creation of the world. I was not only on his mind while Christ was on the cross, I was always in his heart even before the creation of the world. This is one of the great wonders of sovereign grace, and it should boggle the mind. It should humble us to the ground, even if it does raise more questions than we ever had before. It doesn't change the biblical fact that all of the redeemed of God were loved before time. Amazing grace that could save a wretch like me. And so we have left three now of the four pillars of hope to consider. The first, of course, being the foreknowledge of God. The second, in this phrase, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Thirdly, the matter of our obedience to Christ. And fourthly, the fact that we have had the blood of Christ applied to our souls. Before we consider the phrases individually, I would have you note the particular structure of the sentence that is verse 2. A few moments ago we sang so heartily Luther's Reformation hymn, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Peter would have liked that hymn. Uh, Peter would have us see that this mighty fortress, who is our God, is a God that communicates Himself to us as a God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. So that when you and I, His children, by faith in Christ, when we say with Paul, for example, if God be for us, who can be against us? We mean that the whole of all that God is, as Father as Son and Holy Spirit, is working on our behalf. So see the Trinity in these verses of Peter. In foreknowledge, you noted, it is God the Father who predestines to save us. In dealing with our sins, it is the blood of the Son, the blood of Christ, which cleanses us. And in making this great salvation revealed to us individually, it's what you and I often mean when we boldly ask someone if they know Christ as what? A personal Savior. It is the sanctifying and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. By which, if you put that together, the triune God causes us to be born again, to be His child. And I say, hallelujah. You see, the redeemed of the Lord and only those in Christ soon discover that God is not against them because of their sin, but that the whole of the Trinity is for us against our sin. That's a liberating statement of truth, perhaps. I would do well to repeat it. Perhaps you would do better to embrace it by faith. In Christ, God is not against you because of your sin. He came against your sin for you. He is for you against your sin. Paul concludes after that truth is declared, So what could possibly separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? I don't know if you've ever thought about how desperate your fallenness in Adam really was. Or how great a thing our sinful depravity really is. But I know this. It apparently took all three persons of the Trinity to rescue us, and to redeem our souls from hell. That's why we believers so gladly sing words like, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen and amen. So that when we talk about our great salvations, we sometimes mean, rightly, how great is our sin to require such a great salvation? But I think Peter would say that what makes our salvation so great is that God in three persons was and is and ever will be fully involved in securing your eternal destiny, both in time and And, of course, for all eternity. And so we will see in the three pillars that remain, but in a far more brief way uh, than the necessary time I took with the subject of God, the Father's foreknowledge. What comes next in the text is the phrase, second pillar, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, the term to sanctify is the same Greek word often translated to make holy or most literally, to set apart for a holy purpose. Now, though what I'm about to say may be a bit um, too earthy for such a glorious truth, I will, for the risk of illustration, using our own vernacular, begin to get us in touch with what it means to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, as Peter writes. And I would put it this way. Everyone who becomes a true believer, everyone who becomes a Christian is someone who has been targeted by the Holy Spirit. Those that God the Father foreknew, the Holy Spirit targets. There is an inward work of the Spirit of God bringing new life through, as we sang and read, regeneration, causing us to be born again, bringing for the first time a deep and disturbing conviction of sin, then opening spiritually blind eyes to behold a bleeding sacrifice, opening deaf ears to hear the gospel message, and then opening the heart to believe it and then continuing the work of renewing the mind and the heart after the very likeness of Christ himself. All those things are what it means when Peter says, being foreknown by God the Father, the Holy Spirit targets us and does this kind of regenerating work. A work the Holy Spirit then seals, the Bible says, and secures Until he brings us into the very presence of Christ, where the final work of transformation to perfection is accomplished. Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, go ahead, say it with me, glory for me, when by his grace, you see, that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, I see his face and made like unto him. Oh, that will be glory for us. Peter says, concerning the third of the pillars, that even our obedience to Christ, or maybe I should say especially our obedience to Christ, is also the fruit of this sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You see, folks, none of us at this stage of the Holy Spirit's work, at this stage of our sanctification, none of us really obey very well, or even very often, or certainly not consistently. Or as the Apostle Paul would say, I have by no means arrived. But I want you to know this, that Anything you ever do as a child of God that you could call obedience, or I should say that He would call obedience, is not, is not, nor could it ever be by the merits of your own efforts. You may not have thought of that when you hear the word obedience. That it is something that actually we could never do out of the strength of our own resolve. Jesus put it clearly this way in John 6.63. Here's what he said unequivocally. It is the Spirit, his Holy Spirit, who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are of the Spirit and are life. Now, I'm going to be visiting this matter of our obedience to Jesus Christ later in our studies. But for now... May I give you a distinction that you really must begin to make. I pray that you will make it. In your mind and heart, when you think about the matter of your Christian duty to obey Jesus Christ, you must work hard at this, I suppose, but you must never see your obedience as some attempt to gain merit or favor with God. One scripture tells us, as the servants of God who've been redeemed, that even after we've done it all, assuming we could do it perfectly, we're still supposed to say what? We are unworthy servants. Now, perhaps James is a better teacher than Peter on this matter of obedience or good works. But Peter is making the same case. That all of our obedience or good works are in fact bad good works if they are done for the purpose of gaining merit with God. To say that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags we need to understand is as true a statement after we are saved as it was true before we were saved. The flesh prophets. Nothing. Meritorious good works, earning merit. Meritorious good works are actually bad works. However, what may be the same actions, obedience to Christ, as the fruit of God's Holy Spirit working in us, are quite acceptable works and do in fact please the Lord. Such works please him precisely because they are not meritorious works, but they are what I like to call evidential works. It is the evidence of true faith and the real working of the presence of Christ in the soul. What Christ commands, we, by the Holy Spirit, accomplish as the fruit of his inward working through the Holy Spirit. Or, as the scriptures declare elsewhere, we work out our salvation. We do obey, but only because it is God at work in us, both to will and to do his good pleasure. You've done some acceptable good works this week. And were I, as a bystander, to see it, you need to know that more than a pat on the back, I would simply be giving praise to God for what you could not do ever in your own strength. But I would rejoice to see The working of the Spirit of God in your life. How liberating this truth should be. Too few Christians have grasped this, even after many years of trusting in Christ. Listen, Jesus said His commands are not burdensome. Unless you're trying to do them in the energy of your own flesh to gain some kind of favor. Maybe so God will answer your prayers or something. I don't know. His commands are not burdensome. When your obedience and mind is motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit, who does this, by the way, he gives us, when it comes to the commands of Scripture, a want to, a want to, in place of a have to obedience. I asked someone to forgive me for something I had done that was wrong. And they said, well, I guess I have to. (laughs) No, I want them to want to. So I'm praying for God's work in their heart. You see, we get walking in the light as He is in the light. We will have fellowship with Christ. We walk in the light by the Spirit. And we will not be so preoccupied then with the fulfilling of the desires of our sinful flesh. The flesh profits nothing. The Holy Spirit gives life. The fruit of true faith is obedience from the heart. By the wooing, the renewing, and the strengthening grace of the Holy Spirit... I hope some of you can't wait till tomorrow morning, Monday morning to step out into fellowship with Christ and then go out the door fully dependent upon this sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit.